Salam and welcome to another episode of Network Reorient in association with Reorient Journal and the Critical Muslim Studies Project. In this episode, we have Ismail Patel in conversation with Nazi Kazi on her book, Islamophobia, Race and Global Politics. Welcome and thank you, Professor Nazia Kazi, for joining us on Network Reorient podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks. you. Okay, before we get into your book, which I really want to discuss, Islamophobia, race and global politics, I've looked at your profile and see that you've moved from economics to anthropology. How did that come about? Well, you know, um, as an undergraduate um, student when I was studying economics, uh, that was actually the time when the September 11th, 2001 attacks uh, took place. Mm -hmm. And so my attention really shifted pretty quickly to thinking about global politics, to thinking about global power. And from that point on, I sort of became obsessed with the study, not only of global like racial politics, but also thinking about how US foreign policy practices intersect with the politics of race domestically. And to that end, you know, anthropology was appealing to me, but it was sort of a means to an end. I mean, I think there are a lot of disciplines in the social sciences that could pursue that question. Um, And anthropology kind of gave me the chance to engage in ethnographic field work. And in that way, motivated that shift. That's very interesting. So you're very interested in uh, sort of empire building and uh, domestic impact of that, I suppose. Exactly. Okay. Let me start off with a phrase that, uh, a very famous phrase that you use in your book, or paraphrase rather, you know, which is referred to either John Lyley, Shakespeare, or Margaret Hungerford regarding beauties in the eye of the beholder. And you use that phrase for Islamophobia uh, in the sense that Islamophobia is in the eye of the beholder. What are you trying to convey from that? So in that section of the book, I'm talking about how the tentacles of what we call Islamophobia extend well beyond Muslim populations. And in this way, you know, we can sort of understand Islamophobia as a term as somewhat Mm -hmm. of a misnomer. I mean, it, it kind of does not accurately define the things we want it to define. You know, there's that term phobia in there. Certainly we know that aggressors against Muslims likely don't harbor much of a phobia about Muslims. But then there's that other part, you know, Islamophobia. Uh, It assumes that Muslims are uniformly and uniquely victimized by this type of hatred. And of course, in the U.S. context, we've seen Sikhs, you know, Arab Christians, Hindus, uh, all kinds of folks targeted by Islamophobia. We've also seen, though, you know, the impact of Islamophobia Uh, targeting migrants from Latin America. So, for instance, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security and ICE, which was ostensibly done as a response to 9-11 by the Bush administration, uh, ended up really, you know, uniformly um, and uniquely uh, victimizing migrants from Central America. So in that way, you know, I think what we mean when we talk about Islamophobia is a unique form of racial politics that demonizes Muslims, but accomplishes many other things along the way. Yeah, you use the word beyond Muslims there. Uh, And I suppose, in a way, can we look at this as the tropes that have been associated uh, towards Muslim or to Muslims is what is being targeted? 
Yeah, I mean, the tropes that sort of predated September 11th, 2001, you know, the tropes of, you know, the, the, the terrorist or the, the oil baron, etc., kind of shape-shifted in certain ways after September 11, 2001, and morphed into a kind of national obsession with national security, with homeland security, right? This idea of the U.S. as a homeland that needs to be protected really comes sure. out of this anti-Muslim animus um, and has really mm -hmm. peculiar outcomes that stretch, as I said, beyond Muslim. So it can be, for instance, the expansion of the surveillance state, which hasn't just impacted Muslims, right? Um, it can be yeah. the use, for instance, of, uh, I'm thinking about uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline, uh, an oil pipeline that was constructed illegally across indigenous, you know, Native American territory, uh, it was later found mm -hmm. out that in cracking down against these protesters, the Dakota Access Pipeline used Tiger Swan, which was a counterterrorism firm. So a counterterrorism firm ostensibly created to, quote unquote, protect the U.S. from Muslim mm -hmm. terrorist attacks, as they would deem it, is then mobilized yeah. against indigenous people. So there are these very perverse and peculiar outcomes of, um, you know, Islamophobic um, uh, rhetoric and actions that that have really wide-reaching impact. So, so you do you believe then, or do you have an understanding that Islamophobia is being employed by the state apparatuses to get away with certain projects that they have and, and silence the wider community? Absolutely, exactly. Um, you put it really well, you know. And I think we it would serve us well to think about. Islamophobia as a sort of dividing up of the world's Muslims according to the dictates of global capital and global power. Uh, and when we begin to do that, we can move past a really flat understanding of Islamophobia as you know anti-Muslim bigotry and begin to understand what you know what actually is accomplished by Islamophobia. Is it, for instance, the creation of a larger surveillance state? Is it the creation of a global network of black sites and secret prisons that only mimic the U.S.'s sure. technologies of mass incarceration domestically? Uh, is it the expansion of the military-industrial complex, which we see in the U.S., you know, regardless of the party affiliation of who's in charge? Uh, and then we can begin to have a really fruitful conversation of what we might understand as sort of the material basis of Islamophobia. Okay. Do you then differentiate Islamophobia as an individual act from a sort of a, a policy and a practice uh, approach? Or do you think they're two different entities? You know, I would um, largely think of what we might call as individualized or personal Islamophobia. That, that kind of thing that we all too often hear yeah. reflected in studies of hate crimes and bias reporting, right? We might call that sort of yeah. attitudinal racism. It's the kind of racism that exists yeah. in the hearts and minds of a particular individual, right? And, and, and it, yeah. it can be differentiated from systemic racism or systemic Islamophobia, you know, built into the policy yeah. practices of a Trump, uh, Bush, and Obama, a Clinton, uh, I, I think it's impossible to separate these two, you know, because what we see coming out of the highest seats of power will inevitably trickle into the hearts and minds of individuals. It will inevitably trickle into media representations and tropes and the language that's used by newspaper headlines. So I think actually, you know, what I hope to accomplish in a lot of my work 
is to argue that we can't understand attitudinal or this sort of personalized Islamophobia without understanding the systemic roots that it has. Um, and so I think, you know, all too often we'll see like think tanks and advocacy groups spending an inordinate amount of energy trying to sort of document and, um, and, and comment upon individual or attitudinal bigotry, which is important, but without its attendant, like sort of attention to systemic forms of racism, it kind of misses sure. the bigger picture. And, I, you know, I want to remind the readers of the interconnections between both of these. Okay. So you're almost talking about, if we're talking about Gramsci, about hegemony, really, trying to create how uh, the systemic creates a hegemony for, for Islamophobia. And I suppose the word you, you're using in your book is master narratives. Um, am I fair in saying that or equating those yeah, two? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and when I'm talking about the master narrative, um, what I'm talking about is the sort of story that uh, people tell about themselves. So in this case, when I use it in the book, I'm talking about sort of a master narrative of American ethno-nationalism, the white supremacy that is embedded in the story that Americans tell themselves about, you know, about the U.S. and about their nation. Um, I mean, but also, mm -hmm. you know, we could say the same thing about the master narrative of India being one of Hindutva. Um, you could talk about mm -hmm. the master narrative of the settler colonial situation uh, perpetrated by Israel. Uh, but in the U.S., you know, I would say that liberals and conservatives are equally attached to a different version of the master narrative, and it can be equally sort of sh sort of shallow and a ham-fisted proclamation of U.S. exceptionalism. So, for instance, you know, when we're mm -hmm. talking about the question of immigrants, um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, conservative end of the debate might be like, you know, undocumented immigrants come to the U.S. and change our culture and don't assimilate and they take our jobs. And a liberal interpretation might be America is a land of immigrants made and built and made beautiful by the contributions of migrants. And what both ends of yeah. this uh, conversation miss is sort of what Juan Gonzalez would call the harvest of empire. In other words, uh, you know, military and political interventions, very violent interventions uh, by powerful states such as the U.S. that led to migration to the U.S. You know, that, that's what sort of falls out of the sure. master narrative, which is the mainstream conversation that's offered, you know, about, uh, about American exceptionalism and what the United States is. So do you, there's a, something I need clarification here, maybe, for our uh, listeners. So ethno-nationalism, especially the master, American uh, master narrative, do you think is, an, is, in, is influenced by its empire project or it's because of its foundation itself? I mean, I think America's foundational narrative itself is a study in empire. So, you know, in the U.S., people are very eager to celebrate all too often, you know, the 4th of July, Independence Day, as a yeah. commemoration of anti-colonialism. You know, they'll regard it as kind of a, a celebration of, of, you know, the American colonists resisting British colonialism. And what, of course, falls out of that story is the settler colonialism against a vast number of indigenous people here in the United States. You know, so the, the story of America's founding is a story of settler colonialism that doesn't get to make it into the master narrative. I'm reminded, for instance, of school teachers in Tucson, Arizona, which of course has a huge indigenous population, 
Um, Arizona itself is annexed territory, you know, from previously from a border that shifted the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, Tucson school teachers were punished for teaching a book called Rethinking Columbus, which basically takes the Columbus narrative and examines it, you know, from the perspective of indigenous people. Or, for instance, uh, the Colorado school a few years ago deeming that advanced placement high school courses were designed to teach American students pride in their nation rather than, you know, historical fact. So all of this contributes to the creation of this master narrative that you're talking about. Okay, so it's very interesting because I think there's two strands that emerge there. One is America as a settler colonial state, white settler colonial state, should we say more specifically, that is trying to create this whiteness that brings about civilization in that region. But the second aspect is the empire building in which it's trying to justify expanding that idea globally and then bringing the tropes back into the metropolis. Uh, it's almost like a double whammy on the ethnic minority, or not the minority there, but the colored, uh, the non-whites within America. Sure, sure, we can certainly understand it that way. And I mean, I think it was, an, it was always an expansionist ideology. I mean, from Manifest Destiny, through, you know, the annexation, very violent annexation of Hawaii for the corporate benefit of Dole, you know, so it was always expansionist. And I think one of the things I sort of want to point to in my writing is that, you know, this idea of it being a white project of settler colonialism is very gently disrupted by a liberal narrative that would like a multiracial settler colonial politics, right? And this is where we see the sort of laudatory approach to an Obama presidency, which left intact the most egregious forms of American militarism and empire building, but with a kind of, you know, a nod toward diversity and inclusion. So so I think it's important to think about it in those terms, right? While it may still uphold a global project of white supremacy, it is done, it is carried out by a, a, a diverse cast of actors. Let me push you a little bit more on your liberal settler colonialism idea of how their narrative is being formulated. Would you then say that while accepting that America in particularly is made up of different backgrounds, uh, of people of different color, the idea of its civilizational reach, if you like, has been only maintained by the white people? Is that what you're trying to say? Actually not. What I'm trying to say is that there has been a strategic deployment of sort of race inclusivity that's used to bolster at different moments in history, uh, American militarism or American empire, right? And so this is why we saw, you know, Muhammad Ali famously reject military service and that causes such a hubbub in, you know, in American culture, because at the time, the strategic use of, um, you know, black soldiers in Vietnam in the midst of the civil rights movement leads to a really sort of peculiar racial formation. Right. And this is this is what I point to in my book when I talk about the use of Kizar Khan by the Democratic Party in 2016 to sort of use a Muslim family who lost a child in a U.S. war of aggression to remind Americans that Muslims too serve in armed forces and therefore they should be included, right? And this is, this is what I mean when I talk about sort of a multi-racial coalition around U.S. empire, which is what, um, what sort of the 
liberal, neoliberal, multicultural project of empire is. So they're very much opportunistic and almost co-opting the others into a, a American project, an American dream. Absolutely. That's a great way of putting it. <laughs> okay. I think that's a very good sort of introduction on the first part. But I think the more difficult part, I think, always is how do we try to counter these narratives then? Uh, the master narrative in particularly, what is, so in, in Americanization uh, or the whitening of America, uh, how do you create a counter narrative against it? Right. And so in the book, I kind of offer a critique of some ways that people have attempted to counter the master narratives. For instance, a, a sort of like a, a focus on Muslim compatibility with whiteness or Muslim American compatibility with capitalism or an emphasis on Muslim Americans eagerness to sign on to the war on terror. These are, I argue, really weak attempts at countering the master narrative. And in effect, they leave it largely intact. So I talk in the book and in other mm -hmm. um, writing of mine about sort of a critique of the neoliberal multiculturalism that quite often comes from spaces of upwardly mobile or sort of we might call it like white aspiring um, Muslim immigrant populations. Um, and, you know, uh, Stephen Shihai has written about this. Uh, others have written about this, this sort of this demonstration of compatibility with we could call them American values, but we're talking about our normative values around whiteness and um, compatibility with, a, with a capitalism, that what they largely do is leave the master narrative intact and attempt to get a quote unquote seat at the table, right? Seat at the table politics are sort of a yeah. mainstay of Muslim American reformist efforts against Islamophobia. And when I say reformist, what I mean is you know, they're, they're aimed at integration. They're not necessarily aimed at the abolition of the supremacist structures that have created anti-Muslim racism to begin with. You know, so to your, to, your, to your question, I think, you know, more effective than arguing for the legitimacy of Muslims under, you know, the legitimacy of Muslims according to, to American, quote unquote, foundational values, I think what's really more effective is sustained efforts and sustained coalitions that are directed toward what we might call the roots of Islamophobia or the roots of all forms of racism. So what this means is, you know, a, a rigorous effort against the ever-expanding carceral state or a sustained action against the expansion of the U.S. military-industrial complex or sustained action against the systems of capital that rely on dispossessing the global south of, of, of resources. So, you know, in this, in this regard, you wouldn't celebrate, you know, a White House Ramadan dinner, uh, regardless of who's in office, if it's Trump or if it's Obama. Rather, you condemn that seat of power to begin with for consistently degrading the human condition. Sure. A neoliberal listening to you might say that, you know what, these people are actually enlightened and you are actually dragging them back, backwards. Interesting. You, you know, I mean, I think, I think it's <laughs> interesting to have those conversations to begin with, because I think, you know, what we, what we then encounter is like this, like, so in the book, I offer like a critique of this counter narrative that's offered where in which, you know, Muslims in the US uh, will spend 
vast amounts of resources highlighting the contributions that Muslims have made to quote unquote civilization. You know, here's how we invented, you know, things yeah. that helped surgeries. Here's how we invented coffee. And here are the mathematical inventions and navigational inventions that made the mo modern world possible. And I think ultimately any kind of response to racism that is motivated by this deep defensiveness will always then be shaped by that defensive response rather than an earnest engagement sure. against the systems it intends to topple. You know, so I, what you're talking about with the, the, the neoliberal response to what I'm saying, I mean, I think it's interesting to think about what kind of quote unquote reformist you're talking to, because there are some reformist advocates against Islamophobia who would agree with me, but say, you know, now's not the time to make those critiques, or I agree with you, but realistically, an abolitionist approach is not feasible. And there are others who would say, you know, we actually find some kind of inherent value in the founding structures that you're critiquing. So I think, you know, I think that conversation could go in a range of directions. That's right. Thanks. Okay, I want to come to an, another very important concept that you touch into your book, uh, Islamophilia. And ov obviously this term has been used previously by Andrew Schrock, but he uses it more as an opposite to Islamophobia, a more generalized affection for Islam. But you use it in a much more nuanced sense. Uh, maybe, would you like to expand sure. on that? So, please? you know, after September 11, 2001, there's just this uh, unprecedented attention to Muslims that's paid. Much of it takes an Islamophobic valence, uh, anti-Muslim tropes abound. But at the same time, you also saw in public discourse a kind of celebration of Muslims as peace-loving, mm -hmm. as patriotic, as upwardly mobile. You know, you would see in the years that followed yeah. September 11th, mainstream media stories about you know, uh, Muslims who are, uh, you know, f finance professionals and bankers and doctors. And of course, there are distinct class, uh, like uh, there's like a distinct classism in this kind of discourse, which we should also be critical of. But again, it leaves like. What do you mean by sure, that? You yeah, expand I mean, on I that? Sorry. It's kind of this celebration, once again, of the ideal Muslims compatibility with an economic system that is inherently, you know, inherently always creating a much larger permanent underclass. I mean, if we're talking right now in the midst of this global COVID-19 crisis, we can see literally before our eyes how systems of power are creating and sure. enlarging a sort of permanent underclass, right? So to prove your compatibility with or acceptance in a nation by saying that you're compatible with that system of capitalism can lead to some very perverse ends. So, you know, I talk about Islamophilia as a way of highlighting how there is a politics of respectability. There's a respectability politics that is inherent here that focuses on celebrating a certain type of Muslim American at the expense of actually reinforcing Islamophobia. So uh, my use of the term Islamophilia or the good Muslim trope, uh, which many have written about, is kind of to say that it, it's not just something that we can sort of critique as unfruitful, but it actually works to intensify Islamophobia as well. So if I read you right, or if I listen to you properly, is you saying politics of respectability uh, emerges or brings out of that Islamophilia, which then feeds into the liberal uh, concept of what Islam should be, because then they can buy into it. 
and, and be make Islam more acceptable. Yeah, that's certainly right a big part of that? the picture. And also, you know, what the politics of respectability does is it leaves no room for an earnest conversation about geopolitics, right? So can you be, would, would Newsweek magazine in the years that followed September 11th celebrate a Muslim American the way they celebrated those Muslim Americans who were investment bankers? Would they celebrate a Muslim American who was speaking about Guantanamo Bay and the, the detention center there? Would they celebrate a Muslim American who was speaking out about, you know, um, U.S. sanctions on Iran or the, the decades-long assault on Iraq? Uh, these are much larger and much more difficult questions to have, right? So a Muslim is a good Muslim, as Arun Kundanani reminds us, if they remain sort of silent on the most devastating aspects of Islamophobia. Do you think that Muslims would have a remit to be critical of social or even political and economic policies that simply did not affect them, but a wider society? I mean, society? I think that is a question we can ask of any group. I mean, I think this is why it's important to think beyond sort of a narrow identity-based approach to politics. So for instance, you know, obviously um, the settler colonial violence perpetrated by Israel motivates a global Muslim political consciousness in a really interesting way. But if we were to understand as simply um, we would miss something really big, right? We would miss the fact that, A, of course, um, the people who are subjugated by Israel are religiously diverse, but also what we would miss is a chance to engage in this politics as a critique against empire, right? It, it's not, this is not an identitarian or a religious mm -hmm. conflict. Rather, the religious conflict is mobilized by, by certain players. So I think, you know, I think your question is actually, actually very apt because what you're pointing to is the need to build a coalitional, anti-racist, anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist politics in Muslim uh, anti-Islamophobia organizing. That brings us very nicely to the other part I want to sort of expand on a little bit, is the idea of empire and imperialism and building of an empire. How much do you think uh, the empire project, which you mentioned earlier, that sort of the two, in, America, in the context of America, the two are linked as a state, uh, white colonial state and an expansionist state at the same time. But how much is the need for it to be an empire creates or constructs Muslim as the other in, in for, for American yeah, Muslims? Yeah, I, mean, I, I take my cues largely from, for instance, uh, Deepa Kumar and her work in Islamophobia and the politics of empire, where she draws a really neat line between all the issues you, you've just highlighted, right? And so I think what we can conclude is sort of understanding Islamophobia's anti-Muslim bigotry, as I said earlier, sort of misses the geopolitical bases of this. So for instance, if we were to think about Donald Trump as a uniquely Islamophobic figure, which he ostensibly is, um, and think about the fact that he did a nice sword dance with the Saudi royal family, uh, we can then understand that, you know, Islamophobia is better understood as a dividing up of the world's Muslims according to the dictates of global power. So if we were to think about the countering violent extremism programs, which were unveiled by Barack Obama and then quickly taken up around the world, around the world as a counterterrorism measure, they have recruited and relied upon 
uh, sort of Muslim collaborators with these CVE programs, right? And so, so to understand those nuances really moves us along in this conversation, right? Anti-Muslim racism's roots are not because someone has never met a Muslim, and they are not because they don't understand the significance of a hijab. Uh, they are because of these much deeper global power issues that you're highlighting here. And I think it's important for us to remember that. So basically, I think we can conclude in saying that it's a, it's a political construct uh, that this present time demands. Exactly. And that's why we other. can speak of, as Hisham Aidi has done, uh, about the racialization of Muslims, right? The, it's important to remember that uh, Muslims as race as a social construct have been variously like racially categorized, but over several decades now, the, the racialization of Muslims itself becomes apparent. And what is race other than an outgrowth of uh, historical politics of you know, Western imperialism? That's, that's excellent. Uh, Professor Nazia Kazi, I wish you had more time. Uh, hopefully we can Thanks invite so you again uh, soon, but that has been a very, very interesting con conversation and hope Thank to catch up with you very soon. Thank you very much. This has been another episode of Network Reorient. Thank you for tuning in. Please have a listen to some of our other episodes and leave a rating.